This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Wow. Can you hear me? That's the first and most important question. Um, I want to thank, first of all, Luca Cottini. I know you've already been thanked, but uh, this uh, talk would not be possible without all of his hard efforts, and, and I very much appreciate the opportunity uh, to be here at this wonderful university. Uh, of course, Mercedes Julia, thank you so much for, for hosting this visit as well, and thank you, Tim, for your kind words. Uh, I see in front of me uh, the largest group of people I need to thank today, and that is all of you who are students of Italian. I congratulate you on choosing a language education, literature education, and studying the culture of something that is not necessarily your own. This will open doors for you, but it will also help shape the future of your country. This will shape your own lives, and you don't realize necessarily right now what a wonderful voyage you have embarked upon, but you have really stepped through a portal to transform yourselves and those around you. So I congratulate you, and I thank you, because I know that my own students inspire my work, and I expect that you bring a smile and light and inspiration to all of the professors who are sitting here today. So do, when you leave today, think about what a wonderful thing you're doing. And uh, next time someone says, why are you studying languages? Respond in the language you're teaching, or you're learning, rather, and so that I may be in another world. And this is a wonderful introduction, I think, in that sense, this idea of being in another world to the work that I'm doing. And of course, everybody in America knows about Dante's Inferno. It's a video game. It's a barbecue sauce. Um, I think it might actually even be uh, some very, very bad bars um, in some of the seedier parts of Gainesville, perhaps even uh, in Philadelphia, um, where apparently it's always sunny. I don't know, but so uh, happy to be here. I've spent a lot of time studying Dante Alighieri, and I was very, very surprised and really happy to learn when I was an undergraduate that there was more to Dante than the Inferno. I'll tell you something about my own formation. I hadn't realized that he goes after Inferno to Purgatory and to Paradise. It was really fabulous. Uh, something that I thought was, was uh, one-fold turns out to be threefold and uh, triple the pleasure. So I've spent an awful lot of time with Dante and the notion of voyages and the journey and what it means to each of us as individuals, what it means to us as a nation, and really what it means to us going forward. And each day really is a new day and each world that we explore really can be a new world. But let's go back for a little bit, you know, 750 years or so, get in the time machine, and think about the 1280s. You know, sometime in the 1280s, or the early 1290s, Dante Alighieri, yes, he does have a last name, expressed a rather poignant desire to escape the confines of Florence and take to the open seas with his friends Lapogianni and Guido Cavalcanti. The poem, Guido Io Vorrei, is typically introduced to students as part of a survey on Italian poetry, or on the Dolce Stil Nuovo, or an advanced or graduate course on Dante. Yet despite the large body of work on the nautical imagery in the Commedia, this poem is conspicuously absent from Dante criticism. I believe, however, that the poem merits a closer look than it has historically been afforded, for two reasons. The first is that the poem, mer uh, that the poem provides a glimpse into the early figure of the poet that is remarkably autobiographical in terms of both his early poetic and his own personal aspirations. The second reason is that it might provide an even deeper understanding of the larger framing metaphor of the pilgrim's journey by locating it in the context of the very early stages of the so-called age of discovery. It's a short poem, so I think time permits us to take at least a quick look. I'll read it in English because I understand you're not all from Italian, but it's interesting that he uses the io we know, io vorrei. I wish that you and Lapo and I could get on a, on a, on a ship. Uh, the translation I've used is by transporter beam. I think they were thinking of Star Trek, but basically incantamento, enchantment. That we could go wherever we want, out onto the open sea, beneath the skies. Whatever waves that tossed or gales that blew, we'd never be allowed. Nothing, nothing's going to spoil our fun. 
gets better. And we bring the ladies, too. It doesn't say it, but I think they'll be, you know, bring the ladies. They'll bring snacks, and they'll sing songs. It'll be fabulous. And we'll take Vanna. This is Guido's girlfriend, Giovanna. Bess. Bice. Ma chi è Bice? My Italian students. Who's Bice? Beatrice. Beatrice. We'll bring Beatrice, and we'll bring Vanna, and that other woman who's on the list of 30 women. Dante and his friends made a list of the 30 most beautiful women in Florence. Love, of course, would be the main agenda. This is the love boat. And we keep them all happy. This is Dante's early desire. Get out of town. Go on an escapade. Get out onto the open seas. In terms of content, the poem's a bittersweet expression. The transgressive desires of a young man whose life, like that of so many other Florentines, was no doubt governed by a series of regulations, <coughs> expectations, and order. Dante, later in life, confirms this picture of Florence, calling it the well-ordered city. Indeed, in the Commedia, the notion of the city becomes for Dante, as it was for Augustine, the avatar of Civitas, a walled and well-organized construct that both protects and preserves its citizens. Yet in the Guido poem, we sense that a young man with dreams and desires might have seen its walls, its regulations, and its rules somewhat confining. And those of you who've been to Florence, you've seen the beautiful Piazza della Repubblica, the big open spaces. Those did not exist in Dante's time. This image uh, is much more representative of Dante's Florence. Narrow alleyways, the sun does not necessarily penetrate, and it's a walled city. In contrast, the open sea might provide a space in which one's destiny is not preordained, in which the winds may blow, but the ship is steered by one's own desire. Moreover, while the poem anticipates that such a journey is not without peril, it is nonetheless hopeful that no tempest will impede the sailor's progress. The question of why the young Dante might have identified with a sailor on the open seas is an interesting one. The Commedia tells us that Dante was familiar with other sailors of antiquity, Aeneas, Jason, Ulysses, and many critics have speculated that Dante may also have been familiar with sailors' tales and perhaps with popular legends such as the Brendan Voyage, suggesting these as potential sources for the geography of the Commedia. My sense, however, is that we need not speculate as to what Dante had read or heard, for it's very clear that Dante was living right smack dab in the age of exploration and travel. In the Vita Nuova, he tells us of the many pilgrims coming through Florence on their way to Rome, and Dante in the Commedia tells us about his ancestor Cacciaguida, who went to the Holy Land on a crusade. Dante came in contact on a regular basis with people who had sailed to the Holy Land and with those who had journeyed many miles both on land and sea as pilgrims. In the century before Dante was writing, and in subsequent centuries, there circulated the almost certainly fictitious letter of Prester John, a legendary Christian king whose kingdom in the East abounded in wonders. There's an image, uh, this is later, but in Dante's time, there are all sorts of images of Prester John, this famous king and priest in the East. Ashelin of Lombardy had been sent as a papal envoy to the Mongols in 1245. The lure of the East would send the Polo brothers in the late 14th century to venture almost unthinkable distances in search not only of trade, but of experience. Similarly, the call to adventure prompted two Genovese brothers, Vandino and Ugolino Vivaldi, to sail in 1291 to India by sailing west. They sailed across the Mediterranean and out into the Atlantic at Gibraltar and were never heard from again. Modern conjectural depiction of the lost western section of this uh, map uh, shows us the pillars of Hercules. Uh, the Mediterranean itself was a confined space, and to go outside of its arms, like the Vivaldi brothers had done, was considered a transgression. For the young poet who lived in a town in a valley surrounded by hills, the journey to the open sea must have seemed not only liberating, but also remote, and indeed it would take an encantamento, an enchantment, or a tractor beam, uh, to make it happen. Yet this was also the dream of a poet who has the tools for such enchantment in his own hands. Here, then, I think we see at very least the beginnings of Dante's eventual recognition of the cosmopoietic potential of his own words. 
If I were teaching a class right now, I'd tell all you students that cosmopoietic is the cocktail party word of the day. Write it down, impress people with it, and what it means is the ability to create worlds out of words, specifically out of poetry. If Dante cannot actually sail in space and time, he can most certainly create such a journey and make such a journey as we shall see in the Commedia. The cataclysmic changes that occurred between when Dante wrote the poem and when he wrote the Commedia, the death of Monabice, Beatrice mentioned in the poem, his own involvement in his friend Guido's banishment, Guido's subsequent death and Dante's own exile, essentially killed the dream of the poem. My sense is that Guido Iovore may inform, however, a great deal more of the Commedia than we think. It's almost trite to suggest that the Commedia relies for the large part of an opposition of nunc et tunc, now and then, this is now, that was then, or of the old man, the man that I was, versus the man that I am. It's also a commonplace in Dante criticism to suggest that Dante uses the figure of Ulysses to contrast his own Christian journey with the failed pagan journey uh, of Ulysses to contrast the search for divine knowledge with the Ulyssean quest for knowledge for knowledge's sake. But I would argue here that it is the Guido Iovore poem that provides us with the figure of the old man, the man that Dante was, just as much and perhaps even more than the poetry of the Vita Nuova or his unfinished convivio. I think that when we consider the Commedia in this way, that is, as referring to the many instances to the Dante who saw himself as a sailor, the typology of Aeneas, Jason, Ulysses, and even to a certain extent the shipwrecked Paul makes even more sense. In the opening lines of the Commedia, we are given Dante's coordinates. He's in the middle of the road of his life, in a dark woods. It's very familiar to any of you who've studied the Inferno. And if you watch Mad Men, you'll know that I think it was season five opened with these very words. Very familiar. Although Don Draper didn't speak Italian, and he read it in English. <laughs> so here we are in a dark woods, in a forest. Why then does Dante shift our focus from the landscape to that of a survivor of some kind of drowning event out on the high seas? He next tells us that he looks back at Lo Passo, from which he has just emerged, a shipwreck on the shores. He looks back, wow, I can't believe I survived that. It seems almost a sudden image, a sudden break with the narrative. And it's an interesting one, though, because if we remember now Dante's earliest nod to the perils of the sea in the, Ido, in the Guido Iovore poem, we can better understand why he used this image to describe his sense of having barely survived catastrophe. We know that by 1300, the date in which the poem is set, Beatrice, his hoped-for companion in the love, on the, uh, the love boat, uh, his companion on the magical journey, we know that by this time she has died. And the conflict between blacks and whites in Florence was already brewing. We also know that by the time Dante was exiled and writing the poem, that his best friend Guido, his other fellow traveler, is also dead. Despite the promise of Virgil in Inferno One that Dante will, in fact, reach paradise, throughout the Inferno, Dante's dream of the open seas seems remarkably unattainable. Even the reference to Venice, a great sailing power, conjures only the image of the arsenal where the ships are repaired and stored. These ships are not seafaring. They're in dry dock, held up for the winter, in stasis, like the sinners in the frozen lake at the center of the earth. Dante's hell is indeed rife with images and infernal perversions of his particular failed voyage. The boats in hell provide no liberation, and if Dante thought to escape the well-ordered city of Florence, his descent into the underworld is indeed a rude awakening, as Caronte's boat takes the souls deeper and deeper into the abyss of hell, into the city of Dis, that bears a noticeable resemblance to Florence. In Inferno 8, the boat that Dante sails in crosses an enormous palude leading to the infernal city. The sticky nature of the body that he crosses stands in stark contrast to his earlier dream of the open seas and mobility and escape. This is not the open sea at all. 
Yet it appears he has survived one shipwreck. It is hard to imagine that this trajectory will take him to the treasured east. Like the Vivaldis, Dante himself seems bound for oblivion. Moreover, medieval theology spoke to the impossibility of reaching paradise while alive, just as the scripture spoke to the impossibility of entering earthly paradise until the end of time. In Genesis, we see that paradise actually does exist, but it's a no-go. Remember, I'm living in Florida, home of the space uh, program. So we have, it's a go, or it's a no-go. So Dante seems destined to simply descend, 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 and have a dream. I don't know if you've ever dreamed you're swimming, and you're swimming in mud, and you can't move, and your legs, and you can't run. This is what Dante's Inferno is like. And if he thought once he could escape and get out onto the open seas, the Inferno basically says, it's a no-go. You're not going anywhere. But Virgil told him he'll get to paradise. Hmm, how's this going to work? Along the way in Inferno, though, Dante sees a sailor who almost got to paradise. His attraction to Ulysses is much more explicable in this context. For here, we understand the two, if if we go back to that Guido poem, that Dante and Ulysses might be kindred spirits. Ulysses, like Dante, seeks the freedom of the open seas. He does not have a particular destination in mind, but he seeks a new land, Terra Nuova, like Dante uses, Nova Terra, by sailing west. Significantly, he does not find, go seek out to the, the east specifically, as had so many of the explorers of Dante's age, not like Marco Polo, not like the Vivaldi, he's just sailing. Perhaps it was his lack of destination that led to his vulnerability. This was a man who followed desire, much like the desire expressed in the Guido poem. He followed desire, and we know that Ulysses' results were disastrous, because how does he end up? Shipwrecked. This was a man with whom Dante the pilgrim, and certainly the Dante the poet, can identify. These are a few excerpts from Canto 26. I know you're going to rush home. Sit down and read it together. What happened to Ulysses? Well, we know that he went beyond those pillars of Hercules. He tells us. He gives us the ship's log. He kept sailing, kept sailing. Seville to the right, North Africa to the left. We're going west, we're going west. In Dante's world, east was at the very top. So sailing west means what? Going down, down, down. Descending. This is the uh, quote when he's looking for new land. Nova Terra. What we learn from Dante's encounter with Ulysses, I think, which is perhaps the most significant, is that Dante the poet, in introducing Ulysses, the westward voyage that almost gets to paradise, in search of Terra Nuova, what we learn here is that Dante clearly had the possibility of a new world in mind. Moreover, part of Dante, certainly Dante the poet, when he reaches earthly paradise, suggests that he foresaw a new world that was populated with people. He talks about the future people when he gets to paradise. To a certain extent, Dante's location of earthly paradise presents his readers with the proposition that earthly paradise was locatable. According to the scriptures, they already knew that. But perhaps this is where Dante must exercise some early restraint. It could, he suggests, be reached by boat. Peter Hawkins, a theologian at Yale, sees Inferno 26 as a discovery on Dante's part and notes that the episode serves to underline the possibility of getting to this real place. Ulysses' journey in many ways, therefore, is a journey of revelation, for it points Dante towards something neither he nor his readers had seen before. Ulysses' journey was unsuccessful, but that doesn't mean it can't be done. The optimism of the opening lines of Purgatory, as Dante has come through Inferno, turned around, and now actually can start to ascend, this optimism reflects the possibility, and the winged boat that comes to bring the souls to this new world, this young world of earthly paradise, creates a possibility for the poet of the Dolce Stil Novista 
to create a better journey. He talks about sailing for better waters. Another little note I'm going to insert right here, we're going to come back to it, is that Ulysses, we have to remember, was guided only by his human desire. We know from the opening cantos of the Inferno that Dante is guided by Mary. And Mary had many configurations, obviously, in the Middle Ages, but one that is certainly worth noting is Stella Maris, Star of the Sea. The title was used to emphasize Mary's role as a sign of hope and as a guiding star for Christians, especially Gentiles, whom the Old Testament Israelites metaphorically referred to as the open sea. Under this title, the Virgin Mary is believed to intercede as a guide and protector of those who travel or seek their livelihoods on the sea. But we will come back to this. The possibility of his own boat, of Dante having the ability to enchant, may very well lie behind the, enigma the enigmatic opening lines of Purgatorio. The message is one of hope and of resurrection. He says, Ma qui la morta poesie resurga. Here, dead poetry will be reborn, will resurge. If his dream had been dead in the water, having learned what he has along the way, perhaps Dante can sail again. But this time, he needs to do the will of someone other than himself. It's logical, then, that Purgatorio reprises the image of the voyager on the seashore, who just barely escaped a shipwreck, but this time he has a new hope. It's an image of Botticelli's. Now Dante sees the peril of shipwreck does not mean the journey has ended. And his earlier protestations, when Virgil says, oh, you're going to make this journey, you're going to go to heaven. Dante says, well, why me? I'm not Aeneas, I'm not Paul. These earlier protestations are revealed as a bit of panic and a bit of disbelief and a bit of desperation on Dante's part. And the journey that he started with Guido, he now believes might actually be one that he can finish with Monabice with Beatrice. Now he's going to correr miglior acque. He's going to course over better waters. He's going to raise the veils. And those of you who are studying Italian, you see vele rivelazione, revealing, lifting up the sails, taking back the veil and seeing what's behind them. The ill-fated nature of Ulysses' journey is reiterated in Dante's dream of the siren in Purgatorio. But the dream also contrasts Dante's own power of song with that of the sirens, whose song means death, not resurrection. Dante does reach earthly paradise, and the dream of the sailor is not only resurrected, but it's given a new mission, this time to reach heavenly paradise. Here in earthly paradise at the top of Purgatory, looking across the river, Dante witnesses a spectacular pageant of religious imagery, much of it based on Ezekiel, and the book of the Apocalypse, Revelation, in the, in the last book of the Bible. Beatrice's role in this great tableau has been likened to the second coming of Christ. Dante's dream of sailing the open seas with Beatrice has now been transformed. They will sail together, but she is his admiral now, directed by the Stellamaris. Beatrice is described as quasi ammiraglio, almost an admiral. like an admiral, he says, inspecting the personnel whom he oversees in the other boats. In Paradiso, the theme of the sea voyage is once again emphasized, despite the fact that it seems we're in the sphere of the stars. As the journey continues, Dante, the navigator who has learned so much, needs to point out the continuing perils to his readers. Oh, you who in Picholeta Barca, in a little boat, be careful because this is a dangerous journey. So he tells us of the dangers of the open waters and warns us against taking to the sea, but he does know there are some who may be called to journey with him. Again, Peter Hawkins has talked about this moment and pointed out that for Dante, the act of reading and the act of traveling were not as distinct then as we might think now. In Dante's time, there was a general adherence, at least among the literate, to the Augustinian notion that the world was a book. Accordingly, if reading was traveling, so too might, serve, might writing serve as a sort of ship's log. 
in which the voyager recounts the marvels he has seen along the way. Distinct, however, from all of the other accounts of the journeys to the east, Dante alone reaches earthly paradise and, as we shall see, heavenly paradise. By going west, that is straight down from Jerusalem, and remember I mentioned that the medieval maps put east at the very top. Of course, now we have north. We know that the Australians are upside down. But in Dante's time, east was at the top. So Dante is essentially going straight downwards, a shortcut to the west. And by going straight down from Jerusalem, Dante gets to the east. <laughs> he also extends the trajectory of the Roman Empire to the east by going west and extends the journeys of Aeneas, who had gone west, of St. Paul, who had gone west, and Dante himself has promised to go to Quella Roma, onde Cristo è Romano, to that Rome where Christ is a Roman. Here, the great open sea is ruled by God's will, not the will of a young man who wants to go wandering with his friends and his lovers, or his, his one lover, remember Beatrice, the only one. Indeed, as the pilgrim ascends even higher and higher and higher again, and I said we would come back to the Stella Mares, we are reminded of her guiding presence as St. Bernard delivers the final prayer at the end of Paradiso. Bernard, who not only uh, wrote the order, or the rule, for the uh, Knights Templar, was also a great proponent of Mary as the Stella Maris. In his Misum Est, Bernard wrote, If the winds of temptation arise, if you are driven upon the rocks of tribulation, look to the star, call on Mary. If you're tossed upon the waves of pride, of ambition, of envy, of rivalry, all of these sins of the inferno, look to the star, call on Mary. Dante is a voyager, yes, but significantly he is a navigator who leaves his logs for those who would follow. Dante's logs contain warnings and guidance, and I think we may argue a new map of the world. In this sense, Dante's journey anticipates the journeys of those who followed. In the decades following the publication of the Commedia, the Franciscan Odorich of Pordenone would travel to the east, Lancelotto Manocello would give his name to Lanzarote in the Canary Islands, and Giovanni di Marignoli, the Florentine, would travel to China. The distinct possibility of his journey existing in actuality was reinforced in particular through the publication of the 1481 Landino edition, an illustrated edition that materialized previously imagined space, made the spaces of the Commedia more knowable. It is in this context that we may posit a connection between Dante's voyage and its dissemination throughout Europe, including Spain of the 1480s, where this edition was a bestseller. We can make this connection between the dissemination and the 1492 journey of another Italian exile, who also sought the East via the West. There's good evidence that Columbus was drawn not only by bounty that lay hidden in the East, but also because of the return to paradise that such a journey signaled, and the connection that it bore to Revelation. Moreover, there is good evidence to conclude that Columbus was guided in his endeavor by the paradigm provided by Dante and the journey of the Commedia. While Columbus's voyage from a geographical perspective did not challenge many of his contemporary conventions, uh, by Columbus's time, most people, um, most learned people understood the world to be a sphere. They just didn't understand that you would not necessarily drop off if you sailed west. Um, his journey did challenge the belief that the other hemispheres were not accessible to humankind. Columbus is therefore remarkable in that he believed he was exempt from the prohibition of going to earthly paradise. His early letters and diaries indicate that he believed that God had chosen him as a divinely appointed uh, agent of the apocalypse and had been chosen to complete this journey. Parallels in his life and that of Dante quite possibly fostered this belief, and later he would point to his success as proof of his destiny, inductive reasoning at its finest. Additionally, the margin notes that Columbus made in the books that he owned, Marco Polo's Voyages, a variety of cosmologies, 
World History's travel accounts, the margin notes reveal Columbus's personal interest in the journeys of Paul and Aeneas. There's a, a copy of one of the, the pages from one of uh, Columbus's books. These books are held in the archives in Seville, and his margin notes, believe it or not, have never been transcribed or published. Yeah. It, it should be done. I volunteer. Um, while Columbus's voyage, uh, let me just go back for a moment. Had Columbus failed, of course, we would never have heard of him. And his journey would easily have been dismissed as transgressive and destined to fail. Of course you can't sail there, or fall off the edge of the earth. But his success not only cured this transgression, distinguishing his journey from the Vivaldi's and from that of Dante's Ulysses, his success at the time confirmed, and this is important, the cosmology of the Commedia. It bears noting that Columbus himself imagined a world that had much in common with Dante's. I'm pushing my button. There we go. This is the Earth of Dante. And of course, we still have our, our modern convention putting north at the top. You see Jerusalem at the east, an earthly paradise directly antipodal. This is a, an image that is created from the letters of Columbus. Both Columbus and Dante locate earthly paradise antipodal to Jerusalem. Columbus's journey then retraces Dante's to a certain extent as he travels downwards and returns to tell the tale. He writes in one of his letters that after having discovered the mouth of the Orinoco River, he inferred from his observations that the earth has the shape of a pear which is all very round, except at the stem where it's very prominent. Or that is, as if it had, as if it had a, was a very round ball, and on one part of it was placed something like a woman's nipple. This is una teta de mujer. So specifically, remember this nourishing notion of this new uh, paradise. A few miles inland, Columbus expected to arrive at the bulge of this pear-shaped world, on top of which he expected a promontory on, what, on top of which he expects to find the legendary earthly paradise. Columbus's 1492 voyage, I can't help but remind you all, was guided by the Stella Maris, because he sailed in the Santa Maria. Similarly, in his letter to Piero Sodorini in 1504, Amerigo Vespucci, reporting on his third voyage, also states, if the terrestrial paradise is in some part of this land, it cannot be very far. It is, as I've told you, in a climate where the air is temperate at noon, being neither cold in winter nor hot in summer. The connection between Dante and Vespucci was not lost on cartographers, such as Galle, whose atlas containing or celebrating the discovery of America explicitly links Dante's Commedia with the revelation of a new continent. <clears throat> Again. Hmm. Let's, see. Let's go to the previous. Looking about that window. No, I have a, I somehow have a. There we go. There we go. What are we looking at here? Vespucci, the navigator. And on the other side, we have a direct quote from Dante. This is linked as the fulfillment of the Dantean prophecies. So Vespucci, in his letters to his, his lords, the, the Medici, uh, Piero, uh, rather to, um, sorry, he writes to Soderini, he also writes letters to the Medici, in which he makes this link to earthly paradise. Subsequent geographers link Vespucci and Columbus and uh, Dante explicitly, as you see in this image. In the centuries following, Vespucci, many of the writers of the Italian Renaissance equally link the New World back to Columbus and back to Dante. 
uh, Ita McCarthy, a scholar uh, on, on Ariosto, has argued convincingly of the extent to which the Commedia has a privileged influence on the Alcina episodes of Ludovico Ariosto's Orlando Furioso. Significantly, Ariosto predicts the discovery of new lands, which of course had been discovered when he was writing in the early decades of the 16th century. Is it going to go? Yeah. <sighs> there we go. Um, this is a quote from, a, from the Orlando Furioso. Although it's set in the time of Charlemagne, it's already predicting the discovery of the new world. Even more so, Torquato Tasso's 1581 epic, Gerusalemme Liberata, uh, though set again prior to the New World discovery in the time of the First Crusade, includes Columbus, using the same kind of retro-prophecy that Dante and then Ariosto used. Tasso predicts the eventual discovery of a hidden land by Columbus, whom he calls Uomo della Liguria. As Tasso contrasts the Ligurian's success in reaching the New World with Ulysses' failure to do so, significantly it's not Homer's Ulysses to whom Dante uh, Tasso makes reference. Rather, his paraphrasing of Ulysses' voyage and eventual destruction are a clear reiteration of Dante Alighieri's retelling of the Ulysses story in Inferno 26. You see the reference to the Pillars of Hercules, Ulysses sailing beyond, and reaching with a disastrous end. But Columbus, says Tasso, managed it. This is not Homer's Ulysses, by the way. Homer's Ulysses stayed home very nicely with Penelope and lived happily ever after. Tasso's allusion to Dante's Ulysses forges in the reader's eye a literary chain that connects Columbus's voyage to Dante's and thus back to Paul's and back to Aeneas's and the establishment of a Roman Empire. At the same time, Tasso's treatment of Columbus's arrival in the Americas reflects the European perception of the New World as both the gateway to paradise, the Garden of Eden, and a portal to the New Jerusalem, the golden city of God, that is the El Dorado, sought by Sir Walter Raleigh as late as the 1500s, among others. Tasso's take on the significance of the New World journey builds on Columbus's perception of self as an agent in the coming of a New Jerusalem as evidenced in Columbus's own journals and writing in which he insists he was divinely appointed. Tommaso Stigliani, still a later work of the 1600s, reiterates the antipodal position uh, in his 1628 epic Il Mondo Nuovo of both what he and Columbus called an other world, not a new world. Amerigo Vespucci gives the idea that it's a new world. The Stigliani work uses allusions to the Commedia, to alert the reader to the Dantean foundations of Columbus's cosmology. The papacy and the Italian consciousness, however, could not have been oblivious to the irony that while Italy had no national presence in the New World, it was Italians such as Columbus, Vespucci, Caboto, Verrazzano, who had guided the ships, assuming the roles of captains and strategists in the reconquest of paradise while the former great naval powers of Italy, Venice, and Genova were reduced to seeing this new world through a carnival hawker's device. As the papacy responded by presenting Catholicism as a supra-imperial power and by emphasizing that its Roman essence transcended mere nationhood, Stigliani looked to the figure of Christopher Columbus as proof of the legitimacy of papal, but more specifically, Roman dominion over all of the souls of this new wilderness. Stigliani's reliance on a Dantean paradigm in his construction of Columbus continues Tasso's endorsement of Columbus's divine appointment and asserts him, inserts him into an apostolic succession legitimized through a series of national texts tracing back to Virgil's Aeneid. Stigliani goes much further than Tasso. His Il Mondo Nuovo, his new world, is full of textual allusions to the Commedia, and in particular those aspects of the Commedia that recall journeying by ship. He talks about inflating his sails, a uh, tempesta, a storm that leads him into, into a shipwreck. He has his Columbus landing in una selva, like that of Dante's Selva Oscura. There's a moment in the Mondo Nuovo when Stigliani's Columbus is shipwrecked and in a dark forest, and he says, God, why have you done this to me? 
If it's not your will that I take this journey, tell me so, and I'll just go back to my little nest in Genova. The angel says, no, 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 it's God's will. Sail west and go Christianize the pagans you find there. The angel's reply is clear. It is most assuredly God's will that Columbus sail on, discover another world, and importantly convert all of its inhabitants to Christianity. When Dante's pilgrim was asked why he would be allowed to enter this other world, <laughs> protesting, I'm not Paul, I'm not Aeneas, he was setting himself up as an inheritor of both traditions. When Stiliani's Columbus in 1628 in essence asks, why me? He repeats Dante's own questions and creates that link and reiterates the ultimate revelation. Stiliani's Dantesque Columbus is both. He is the heir to the divinely providential Roman Empire that is moving west. He is the heir to Aeneas who, uh, who, who will ultimately be fulfilled by the Christian Paul who also travels west. And the heir to Dante who made the journey to the east by going down west. And he ultimately will find himself in that Rome where Christ is a Roman. Dante, it seems, both anticipated the age of discovery and inspired the Italians who sailed to and named this new world. His creation of the writer as voyager seems also to have informed the works of those engaged in the act of conjuring up a new world through ingenio, human genius. The fantastical worlds of Ariosto and Vespucci, for example, speak to the poetic power of the imagination, the original incantamento of the Guido poem, as the sea voyages of their heroes chart new courses to the east and beyond. But the figure of Dante the Navigator contains an even further potential, one ever more prophetic, as his dream of the eagle, if I might be so daring, his flight on Gerion, the celestial boat of purgatory, and ultimately Dante's flight to see the face of God anticipates an even later age of discovery and the journey to even newer worlds. And those of you who were born in my era will remember very clearly those words, the eagle has landed. Dante the navigator out on the open sea and eventually under the command of an amiraglio guided and turned by the Stella Maris functions as a harbinger of an age in which the individual is in harmony with the collective and in which one small step for man can also be a giant leap for mankind as the fusion of Dante, the individual, and Dante as every man sets the traveling man, the homo viator, on a trek towards the stars. Thank you. Great. Um, we have time for questions. Dr. Cortini's asked me to make two real quick announcements before before we get to that. And you know, stick around for these questions, and also stick around because there's some good-looking food in the, in the <laughs> back too. Um, but the first is that in a day or two, in a few days, there'll be a video uh, of this talk appearing on the Italian program's <laughs> website. Just in case if anyone wants to tell friends about it who, who may have missed it, or if you just want to kind of relive the awesomeness. Um, and secondly. Um, he wanted me to mention that there, if anyone, if any of the student, the students are interested in the Urbino summer program, um, to be in touch with him. Um, dead, the deadline is late at, at the end of uh, at the end of March. Um, it's about a six-week language program from early June to mid-July. Is that about right? Yeah, sounds good. So talk to talk to Dr. Gottini. Um But who wants to start with some questions? I'll, I'll let you decide who. If oh, the first hand up. But first of all, I just want to say hello to Vanessa. Hi. This is one of my students from the University of uh, Florida. Oh. Thank you for coming. You have a question? Yeah, um, I actually took a class like specifically about Dante's Divine Comedy, and we did. I remember the, the part of uh, Ulysses was one of my favorites out of mm -hmm. the entire book. And I don't know. I'm thinking about like the motivations that he gives for Ulysses being in the Inferno, and mm -hmm. I found it surprising that he was there. Um, so how would you compare the motivations Ulysses had that landed him in the Inferno versus Dante's motivations for traveling in the Guido Yo Rey poem, like what was the difference? Or did he have landed in the inferno according to his uh, set of ideals? My own sense is, that, first of all, great question, wonderful, because Ulysses is this, this enigmatic figure, right, um, who appears in all three canticles, 
There's references to him throughout. Uh, I think that Ulysses' motivation was probably not all that different from Dante's in the Guido Iovore, especially as Dante writes Ulysses. Because remember, Homer's Ulysses, and I, I, I think I made this clear, but perhaps not super clear. Homer's Ulysses finishes his, his Odyssey, he goes home. He goes home, and he waits there, and he, you know, ostensibly dies in his old age. Dante, on the other hand, has him set out on one last escape. I got to get out of here. They're boring me to death, you know. Home is not sufficient for me. I want to go out and see more. I want to escape the confines of regulations, normal life. I am exempt from this. And that's really what Dante, as a young man, was saying. And this poem is great for undergraduates, because who of us hasn't said, eh, enough of classes, you know? And my parents have these rules, and society wants me, and there's walls, etc. I want to get out of here. I just want to go on a vacation. I want to go on an escapade. That desire to know, but for what? What do you want to know? Why do you want to know? What are you going to use that knowledge for, right? I'm just going to get out on the open sea. I'm going to take my boat. And I really don't care if I ever come back. Very much a young man, young woman sentiment. And that's really what Ulysses is doing. Ulysses refused to grow up. It's a little Peter Pan thing. I'm home. Now I have to make dinner every day. Or now I have to do this. I have to do. So Ulysses and Dante, I think, really are very similar. And when you don't have a plan, and you just say, well, I'm getting in my boat and going. I got my car keys and a full tank of gas. I don't care if I run out of gas or go off a cliff. And that's really the same thing that happens with Ulysses. And it's worse with Ulysses in the sense that he, he's got all his, his buddies with him, right? And he enchants them all. You can all come with me. It'll be great. It'll be one last journey. We're going to get the band back together and go play on the road, right? This is, so I think they're the same. And I think what Dante's telling us when we see Ulysses is Ulysses was not on God's path. The only person who motivated Ulysses was Ulysses. This selfishness, without a plan, without being told, yes, is bound for disaster. Because you don't have a map. Where are you going? Well, I don't know, but I'll know when I get there. And I think that's what's really the link to the Stigliani text, where you find that Stigliani has Columbus in this selva oscura, lost, shipwrecked, wondering, why am I doing this? When Stigliani has an angel come and say, yes, it's God's will, it legitimizes this journey out into the perils of the open sea. There's like this, this progression. You, know, you have Dante, the young Dante, Ulysses, and then Dante, the reformed and chosen Dante, and then Columbus, who is legitimized by the Italian writers, and Columbus in his own diaries, who says, yeah, God spoke to me. I mean, if you go through his diaries and his letters, Columbus said, when I was living in Porto, God spoke to me. So I think the key here is it's okay to go out on the edge of the, of, of the perimeter, right? You can, you can push that envelope, but do you really want to be doing it without God's consent? You think you really need the visa, right? You know? And so I think the, the, you're absolutely right. Ulysses and Dante, and Dante sees himself in the Ulysses that he's invented. And let's not forget that Dante invents that Ulysses. It's Dante's creature. And he's a bit of a you know, a bit of a representation of Dante's former self. But I think, does that answer your question? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. It's a long answer. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I have a question about um, to what extent do we have to consider the after effects of finding paradise? Because Dante mm -hmm. finds paradise it's in this circular motion centering around the light of God's face. And Columbus finds paradise, but then it's on a linear progression where we eventually here have pollution and slavery and war. What to extent do you think that we think we're Dante, but we actually turn out to be Ulysses? Well, I think that that's equally a wonderful question. Um, and that's really that question of aftermath and impact. The question being, do we continue to follow the map, right? Um, the key, we may very well be destined to be Ulysses, right? When and why? When we start to think of self. And when you look at the New World Project, and I don't want to make this political, keep it, keep it very literary, if you read the, the letters of the early arrivals, the, the early explorers, um, there's a whole series by Vas de Caminha, a Portuguese uh, writer, marvelous. You know, they marvel at this return to Eden and the nudity and the innocence of the natives, and they're like free birds, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a new world. This is a fresh start. 
But there's something that concerns them all. I call it the snake in the woods, okay? They're worried about cannibals, which is really kind of an interesting sort of archetype. They're worried about cannibals, and they're worried about their own sexual desire. So in that sense, it's a new world where they have a fresh start, but what do they bring with them, right? They bring with them the sins of the fathers, as it were, not the sins of the mothers, right? They bring the sins of Adam and Eve with them. And then so they have this chance to to have a new world. They're looking at it. They're naked. They're innocent. And what's the first thing they do? It's like, let's rebuild this new world and make it look exactly like the one we left. So there is a frustration there. Are we able to go back and start again, or are we permanently tainted by Eden? So this is, in many respects, the issue of of Augustine's City of God, right? We have this, this city in which we live, but it does have the potential to be the holy city. What do we have to do? I think we have to leave behind Dante does this, of course, in Earthly Paradise. He steps into Leith, and his memory of the past is erased. As long as we bring our old world to the new one, and I think you could even expand that into the whole immigration issue, right? You bring your old world to the new one, you are by necessity colored by your past. But the other thing that happens is that you, by necessity, affect that new world by your contact with it. I mean, this is a whole Star Trek thing, right? You know, just watch, don't actually interact with the people you find. Um, And so it is a conundrum. But what strikes me is, because we are products of Eden, it's next to impossible to wash ourselves in that unless we are prepared to, you know, to deconstruct and get naked again. I don't mean that in a physical sense. Keep your clothes on, okay? But I think that there was this opportunity to re- enter paradise, ironically, that was lost in one sense. However, look where we are, right? I mean, we are in a new world in that sense. We do continue with each new life to have that opportunity to rebuild it, learn from the lessons of Eden. But I I think, you know, this is Dante's frustration. Here's my log. Here's my journey. Here's how you do it. You descend, and then you ascend. You follow the life of Christ. And if you're not going to do that, you're not going to get to paradise. Does that help? Yeah. Okay, good. Next. Any other questions? Okay. Well, thank you for your wonderful patience. It was a long talk, I know. Thank you. Thank you.